0: Okay, we're going to keep going. Continue uh, grabbing snacks, etc. Okay, the question I asked was, what is the heart issue and what is the biblical solution? And uh, this is still all under uh, the category of changing the goal to Ephesians 4.1. And I know these notes are light. I told you this is uh, just a touch. What is the heart issue? What is the biblical solution? Example number one of changing the goal. The presenting problem is, is something like this. Uh, my daughter is short-tempered and she disobeys a lot. She really has some serious self-esteem issues. Okay. Here are the attempted solutions. Trying to make the daughter feel good about herself. Putting her in lots of extracurricular activities to boost her self-esteem. Trying to get others around her to be more sensitive to her self-esteem issues. Um, the reality is, if so-called self-esteem was the issue, then they wouldn't be talking to you. That's, and so you may have to work through a little education. Where did you learn about self-esteem? Well, I mean, everybody knows about that. No, that's a, that's a cultural heresy. Where did you learn about it? Well, uh, I used to watch Oprah a lot. <laughs> um, I happened to see the Oprah episode when she said, uh, the, the goal of all of humanity is to learn to love themselves better. Like, okay, well, that's called uh, anarchy in a godless world so if self-esteem was the issue ironically the more you pour compliments and so-called esteem into somebody the worse they feel and then they become the center of attention what is self-esteem? it is the negative form of a complete self-centered focus that's all it is it's arrogance upside down it's the same issue so what is the heart issue? remember they said, My daughter's short tempered, disobeying a lot. She really has some serious self esteem issues. Well, okay, you already have a solution. Why is it not working? Here's the heart issue the parents are fearful of disciplining sinful behavior. They're encouraging self centeredness. Instead, they need to focus on the gospel and on the salvation status of their daughter. They need to help her to find worth and value in Christ alone. If she's not a believer, you point her to the gospel and you still discipline sinful behavior. Um, Instead of saying, well, she had this big fit because she has low self-esteem. No, kids who have big fits, uh, they don't feel good about themselves because they're having big fits. And you can even tell an unbelieving child, you want to feel better? I'm going to discipline you so that you stop doing this because the behavior you're doing feels terrible. And so um, the real heart issue is not about the child. The heart issue is with the parents. the child is just a victim of parents bad parenting example number two presenting problem my husband is a jerk he is constantly rude and he never listens to me if he would change i could be happy there it is again right if he would change i could be happy attempted solutions well i talk to him more and more about his behavior um and as you dig, you find out that, well, how do you do that? Is it with a gentle and quiet spirit of First Peter 4, 1 Peter 3? Well, no, he won't listen to me. So I have to, I have to, and then you get the list of everything I have to do. How well has that worked in history? Never. Continually pointing out his faults. That seems to be the way I've gone. And I, 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 uh, I, I tell him, see? See what you're doing? That's, that's exactly why I'm miserable because you're doing this. Um, she withholds affection because she feels bad emotionally or feels slighted again and she essentially becomes a, a raw nerve that's just waiting to get hurt and to say, see, I told you. And uh, to, uh, at the risk of uh, quoting Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? It doesn't work. You know what I love about 1 Peter 3? And I've seen wives like their jaws drop at this. 1 Peter 3 says to win your husband without what? A word. And I've given the assignments that you cannot say one negative word to your husband all week and yet you need to begin to win his affection. How are you going to do that? Oh, I don't know. So you, so you go back to scripture. That's uh, the, the solution of... Uh, when when you see a husband getting more and more... And the more I talk, he just gets more irritable. So I keep talking more. <clears throat> Three things to remember. This is just Steve Swartz. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it doesn't work, stop doing it. And if it works, do more of it. Okay? So... You nag him more and more, and you follow him around the house, and he's locking himself in the bathroom, and you're on the floor under that crack in the door saying, I told you I could get to you, listen to me, and he's flushing the toilet over and over again just to cover up the sound of your voice. How's that working? It's not. And very often, the solutions that people come up with is to take a solution that didn't work and to do more of it. What's the hard issue? The hard issue is not taking 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6 seriously. Um, When She says, well, I I deserve something better. Really, according to 1 Peter 3, you might be married to an unbeliever, and the admonition is to treat him with kindness and respect with a gentle and loving heart. I deserve something better. That's that's the sin of arrogance. Are are you in Christ? Yes. What do you deserve? I, I deserve to go to hell for my sin. So... Are you going to be in heaven for all eternity? Yes. Is the worst thing you're enduring in your life right now, a husband who's a jerk? Yeah. Who cares? Again, that's the short version of what you're bringing them to. Um, she's not looking at her actions. She's not looking at how she may be contributing to the dynamic. Listen, the relationship is not a linear deal. It's a circle. Okay? Uh, if, if I go home and I flick my dog on the rear end... I can do that because I have a relationship with that dog. Uh, If I go to your house and flick your dog on the rear end, he might bite my finger off because relationships are circular. They're not linear. We'll talk about that more when we talk about families. Um, She's not being satisfied to please Christ instead of trying to please herself. She's defining success as a better marriage instead of a righteous response. Um, So you take the presenting problem what is the attempted solution? Why didn't it work? Because it wasn't scriptural and because it was self-focused. Well, what is the solution? Ephesians 4, 1. Walk in the manner worthy. Look, I can't change your husband. I, I, can't, I can't be there. You can't call me at three in the morning and say, well, he's at it again. I can't help you with that, but I can help you decide that at three in the morning when he's at it again to have a gentle response and to tell your husband, you know, instead of arguing with you like I normally do, can I make you a sandwich? You know, if you're going to keep yelling at me, at least you'll have food. So you you react in a different way. Totally off the subject, and this is not on the slide, I just want to tell you about some resources. I just threw this in here uh, randomly here, some resources. Um, in the next number of months, um, you know, our children's ministry is going to be transitioning over to the Boys and Girls Club. We're going to move the pastor's offices, almost all of them, upstairs Uh, What is now my office will become a a, a multi-purpose room and we're going to put together a counseling ministry library Um, two or three copies of some about 10 key books that you should have access to. And we'll have, I don't know how, we'll do a little sign-in sheet where you can check out a book and read it and and put it back. I'm not a big fan of church libraries because people tend to donate the book that they read in 1972 and uh, is all marked in. We don't want that. This is resources for the counseling ministry folks only. Um, We're also going to have in there counseling resources resources Um, for the counselees Uh, a guy named uh, lou priolo has written a bunch of wonderful little booklets uh, to work through anger or anxiety and things like that it's just ready made you say okay your assignment is do chapter one and come back and let's talk about it Um, so we'll we'll get that going here soon but i would encourage you um, if somebody told you you're going to fly a 747 and you did a three-hour seminar on it wouldn't you maybe at least youtube it You know, and find some other resources. So if you're that interested in this, keep reading and keep growing. I want to talk briefly about being good observers. Again, we're just hitting some basics here. There's a difference between secular psychology and medical neurology. Somebody says, I'm bipolar. And that's a classic example I like to use. Uh, Okay, maybe. Maybe. Um, when somebody has anything that they present as a physical problem, it, wisdom dictates, go get go get a physical. Go get an exam. Uh, on, on a couple of occasions, I, I had one couple that, uh, that the husband basically said, we've been married all these years and all of a sudden, I mean like, I can't do anything right. Ever. And I was like, aha, um, why don't you go get some blood tests? And turns out that his wife had no estrogen whatsoever. Well, of course she hates everybody, including you, because her body isn't working right. But you know what he was supposed to do? Walk in a manner worthy. It doesn't matter. So um, being good observers. Medical neurology. Uh, there is a whole school of thought in some areas of biblical counseling that says that there is no such thing as physical depression and things like that. I, I don't, I'm not willing to go that far. The, the, the physical body is still a mystery. Um, and how the brain works is a mystery. Uh, it, so, so we want to give uh, grace and the benefit of the doubt. At least eliminate some medical variables. That may be uh, part of being a good observer. I want to talk a little bit about the family as an interactive structure, being a good observer. Uh, don't assume that the problem is always the problem. I'll give you a couple of examples um, that I have I have actually worked with. Um, the presenting problem: my husband is cruel and mean. And that's what that's what the the couple says, and he's just sitting there. She dragged him, you know, into there. Uh, yes, the husband needs to love his wife, obey the Lord. By the pond investigation, his wife works fifty five hours a week outside the home. She comes home tired, irritable. She's fallen into the habit of disrespecting her husband, nagging and getting in front of the TV as fast as she can because she's so stressed out. And yet he's the problem. So you have to understand that relationships are circular. They're not linear. Generally, when you call them linear... Everybody wants to believe that the other person is the cause and the, and my pain is the effect. If it's circular, then you can see, well, wait a minute, what did I do before that person caused me pain? Maybe I was part of that circle. Maybe I was part of that cycle. Uh, another presenting problem. My 15-year-old continues to wet the bed every night. Yes, the 15-year-old professes faith in Christ and needs to learn ways to trust the Lord through this trial. Um, but upon investigation, mom and dad... Uh, openly argue and discuss their, their financial pressures um, about being evicted and not making car payments. And this has been a pattern for years. So of course a 15-year-old who has no power whatsoever is wetting the bed out of just sheer terror and anxiety that my parents can't handle life. How am I supposed to do it? The child is racked with adult-sized worry and the home is unsafe. Presenting problem. All my kids are at each other's throats all the time. This is, this is terrible. Yes, the children need to be taught to obey their parents and parents need to discipline their children. But upon investigation, there's very little structure in the home. Uh, the children don't know what each day will hold. The parents have a chaotic, uh, unpredictable schedule. Sometimes they find themselves shopping at midnight with tired children in tow. The parents have created an unsafe, chaotic situation. And so the family dynamic is chaos and, and, and unpredictability. And a lot of times, especially when, when you see kids be misbehaving, um, you'll learn over time, ask about the family structure. What is Monday like? What is Tuesday like? When do you eat dinner together? Um, and if you get a picture of sheer chaos, rather than trying to deal with disciplining the child, you need to discipline the family. They need think of it as a pie they need to start having more pieces of that pie be predictable be normal feel safe feel uh secure and you know what happens a lot of times kids behavior gets better just simply because they feel more secure children don't have recourse they can't come to their parents and say i've noticed that you're not applying biblical principles accurately when it comes to parenting uh me they just act out and they reflect their environment I want to talk about the concept, this is still under family as an interactive structure, the concept of a family scapegoat. Um, This is the one who shows outward sinful manifestations of a broader problem. And this is why when parents come to you and say, we have a problem with a three-year-old, the first thing you do is find out what their lives are all about. And you've got to get that information. I'll give you an example of a a, uh, family I worked with, a four-year-old child, was doing bizarre things, screaming at her older siblings. She was non-responsive to discipline. Um, she was the youngest of, of uh, three, uh, uh, three other siblings. She was eating things that aren't food. She was smearing her own feces on the wall, just doing bizarre, crazy stuff. And she's four. And the whole family, uh, three older siblings with a little girl, mom and dad all came to counseling to fix the child. Um, Mom said she's possessed. Dad said she's nuts. Uh, Upon investigation, dad comes home and begins drinking to the point of putting the whole family on edge. That is a pattern five nights a week. Mom and the older siblings have gotten used to it. They cope with it by withdrawing, by, uh, by avoiding. Mom enables the behavior by making excuses for dad. Instead of saying to her children, your father is a drunk, we need to pray for him, uh, she makes excuses. Well, he has a, he has a tough job. He, he's, he has a difficult time. And dad warned the family not to bring up the drinking and counseling. You know how I found that out? Because I kept asking the question and begging God for help. I kept asking the question, what's really going on? What's really going on? And finally, the four-year-old little girl says, well, daddy's drunk. And I excused everybody from the room except four-year-old and mom. And I said, come clean. What's really happening? So what happened was four-year-olds don't go crazy by themselves. Um, Yes, they're little sinners, but they respond to their environment. And this craziness came all the way from drunk dad all the way down to the end of the line. And it's like playing crack the whip where you get a bunch of kids. They're all holding hands and they all run around like this. And the kid at the end of the line, the fun part is you get the little one and he goes flying off. She was the she was the end of the whip. So when you see a little kid that is doing bizarre stuff, you've got to look at the whole family. Um, very rarely is it just just that. And that, that goes for anything. Um, when there's one person with a problem, what is the rest of the family doing? So I just want to encourage you to look at the family dynamic, repair holes in the wall everywhere, get as much of that pie going in the right direction as you can. Everything from, um, you know, a man says, you know, my kids just don't respect me. Really, I've noticed that you're only in church twice a month. You you, you shouldn't respect yourself. Why do you expect your children to respect you? You uh, you had two jobs in the last five years. You're not being respectable. How about let's work on you being the man they can look up to. Um, so that's the, that's where you're looking to make that pie as as uh, spiritually healthy as possible. I want to utterly shift gears and I want to talk to you about an issue that comes up that will come up frequently in counseling. and That is the issue of forgiveness. And so we're going to do a very, very basic theology of forgiveness um, right now. Person to person, not between you and God. Um, although obviously the gospel has a clear part to this. Um, the theology of forgiveness is not found in one all-encompassing verse in scripture. In other words, you can't pick your favorite verse In scripture, um, those who believe you should forgive all the time, no matter what, love Ephesians 4. Those who believe you should wait for repentance, love Luke 17 and Matthew 18. You can't pit one scripture against another. You have to have a full orbed understanding. So I'm going to give you a really, really short version. Forgiveness basically has two components to it the first one is the internal heart attitude. The internal heart attitude is unconditional and it is commanded to believers. Um, in other words, uh, you're, not, you're not allowed to harbor um, a wish for harm on another person because that's really basically what that is. You're not allowed to harbor a wish for, uh, <clears throat> for pain for another person. Um, unforgiveness... In this, on this component, uh, the internal heart attitude, it's what scripture calls bitterness. And bitterness is sinful and you have to fight against it. Um, It's an internal belief that another person deserves your anger, deserves your vitriol. Um, Scripture calls us not to fall into that trap. And that's hard. It is difficult because from a human standpoint, often they seem to deserve it, Right? Ephesians 4.31 Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. You know this by the way that unchecked bitterness turns into external sin, clamor and slander. So that's the internal component. It is unconditional. It is commanded that you don't have the right to hold against somebody else something that God may or may not forgive them for. But then there's the external offer of relationship restoration and that may be conditional. Conditional. It may be conditional. In cases of severe offense, this is based in repentance. Uh, Matthew 18, uh, beginning in verse 15, the whole church discipline idea. If we are to re- to forgive everything all the time, regardless of whether somebody repents or not, then church discipline makes no sense, right? There needs to be repentance. Uh, Luke 17, three and four, Jesus said, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying i repent you must forgive him so in other words our position in restoration is that the moment repentance happens your arms are open immediately um but without repentance there may be a, a need to um to understand that you need to communicate to them you have not repented we can't be just the way we were. Um, I'll I'll talk about that in a moment when we look at penance versus repentance. In this external of relationship restoration, uh, external offer of relationship restoration, you always have the option to simply show grace. Right, First Peter four eight. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Um, but that also might be speaking of covering a sin that has been acknowledged, by the way. So you may you, you may have to deal with that. Um, we love First Peter 4, 8. Um, that's why we still have a good marriage because my wife covers sins all the time. And she, uh, she'll say, I'm sure you've had a rotten day and that's probably what contributed to that terrible thing you just said to me. I forgive you. Oh, okay. Thank you, Lord, for, for that graciousness. But that would be different if if she were to say, I have noticed that every day you come home and say rotten things to me, and we need to deal with that because that is breaking our relationship, you need to repent. You see the difference? So you can't categorize forgiveness as just internal or just external. Um, there's two; those two different components. There's the bitterness component. We're not allowed to do that. Unconditional, it's commanded. But the external relationship... Um, might be conditioned on repentance. Um, in certain cases, a relationship may be broken because of someone is acting in essence like an unbeliever in terms of reviling, controlling, and threatening, and so forth. This is one of the reasons I wrote uh, the dissertation I did for my doctoral program because of men who say, I'm a Christian, I, and just be, even though I beat you half to death last night, you have to forgive me. No, that's wrong. No, that that is a broken relationship. Um, a real and a vulnerable relationship is not always possible in those cases. So you have to pray and ask for the Lord's help. Um, and you're as far as it's up to you, you're being at peace with all men. That doesn't mean you're being best friends with everybody. It's not always possible. When you're thinking about forgiveness, we should note the pattern of our salvation. God changes the heart. We can't do that with others except maybe to communicate to them that they're hurting you. Um, that's a, that's about it. God offers forgiveness based what based in repentance, based in forgiveness or based in f- repentance. Now, isn't it great that the Lord gives you the Holy Spirit to be enabled to repent? That's wonderful, which is why a human being who refuses to repent, you begin to question where their where their salvation is. But the pattern is God changes the heart. God offers forgiveness based on repentance. God forgives and sins are never held against that person again. That he moves them as far as the east is from the west. And then you you notice that, re- that forgiveness is asked for. It's not demanded. We don't demand forgiveness of God. Um, we ask for it and, and he gives it. So there's a humility. There's a brokenness. After repentance, and I, I don't have this up here, but after repentance... Um, there should be an immediate restoration of love and the particular offense really should never be brought up again. It, it just really shouldn't. Uh, it, what is that? That just becomes weaponizing things in the past. Um, the married couples get into this habit. Well, 32 years ago, you started doing this, 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 and you've never stopped. Well, I, I can't repent for a lifetime of sin. I can repent for what I just said five minutes ago and I can deal with that. But this issue will come up a lot and particularly when somebody who is not repenting tries to guilt somebody else into acting like there's no sin. Well, God says to forgive. Yeah. He also says you need to repent. Um, So if there was no such thing as forgiveness being based in repentance, we wouldn't have church discipline. It it wouldn't exist. Um, And ultimately, If you hold the position, listen carefully, if you hold the position that you should forgive everyone, every time, for everything, no matter what they do, um, that in essence would make me question, well, what do you believe about God? Do you believe that God should forgive everyone, everywhere, for everything they do, no matter what? That puts you in the camp of universalism and now we have a problem. Okay? The way we deal with one another reflects how God deals with us. Repentance, instant forgiveness, no repentance, a recalcitrant heart, then that can be a broken relationship. And that, that's where that's where navigating those waters becomes so very difficult because you may have to make some hard choices um, to, to continue in something difficult or to eventually say, I can't do this anymore. I can't have you uh, running me down at dinner every night in front of the children without repenting of this, without making some sort of effort, without... Uh, even saying um, that I need to fix this. By the way, saying I'm sorry simply says I feel an emotion of sorrow. Can we think of anybody in the Bible who felt an emotion of sorrow and killed himself? How about Judas? Did he repent? No, he didn't. Peter did. Peter denied Christ three times, never heard of him. And he repented and God restored him. We'll come back to that when we look at penance and repentance. Uh, There's the issue of trust. A repentant person is to be forgiven, but trust may need to be earned over time. That is just a reality. That is just a fact. Proverbs 18, 19. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. I want to be very clear about this. Proverbs 18, 19. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. This isn't presented as good. It's not presented as bad it's just presented as a fact that that's the way it is Um, what's the old saying Um, burn me once shame on you burn me twice shame on me right so you become naturally more careful if you have a child that uh, has a propensity toward lying which means if you have a child period (laughs) you catch them in lies on a consistent basis they need to earn your trust and you need to put things in place whereby, whereby they are more accountable to you for a time. So um, forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. You're not allowed to hold bitterness. Uh, if somebody breaks into your house and shoots you in the leg and you survive and you go visit them in jail. You can say, look, I forgive you as I've been forgiven in Christ. And the guy says, well, can I come to your house for dinner? No, not yet. I'll give you an example. The Apostle Paul dismissed John Mark from the ministry because he didn't trust him. He didn't trust him. Um, And it may be that the relationship never returns to what it once was, but at least there can be peace, there can be some sort of uh, reconciliation. Um, Do you think the Apostle Paul took communion after he dismissed John Mark? Some would say, well, he shouldn't have. No, he did. And the reason is, is because it wasn't an issue that he hated John Mark or that he had bitterness in his heart. He just didn't trust him. He dismissed him from the the ministry. And the cool thing is, is John Mark eventually worked his way back in. He earned Paul's trust. And he's called one of his faithful uh, fellow workers uh, later on in Scripture. All right, now I want to talk about being aware of penance and repentance. This is a huge issue. Um, I'm sorry, I need one more back. There we go. Um, penance versus repentance when I was in seminary uh, we had to write a paper on this in one of our biblical counseling classes and uh, the professor Dr. John Street he said if you mess this up you fail the class because the issue of how God deals with us how we deal with one another is at stake here Um, what is repentance scripturally in the Old Testament it is Turning, I turn from that which is wrong to that which is right. In the New Testament, it is the idea of changing your mind about your sin. I'm not loyal to my sin anymore. I'm loyal to Christ. So both of them have the idea of turning away from one thing bad to that which is good. Which was why the idea of coming to faith in Christ without repentance is silly. Because you can't turn to Christ unless you're turning away from your love for your sin repentance is a change of mind it's a change of direction for changing behavior up to and including necessary restitution you know you're raising your kids and they and they break something because they're being careless and the child says i i'm i truly am sorry i really i really know that i was misbehaving and i was disobeying you and i broke this thing i'm sorry will you forgive me yes i totally forgive you that'll be 595 please Because that's what it cost. So that might be part of repentance. In the Old Testament, you stole something from somebody and you repented and you gave it back. You had to pay a 20% fee to them as well. You steal four sheep, you get back five. What is penance? Penance is the use of gifts or kind actions that substitute for true repentance with the expectation that this should make up for any wrongs that are suffered. Let me read that again. Penance is the use of gifts or kind actions that substitute for true repentance with the expectation that this should make up for any wrong suffered. Now, a gift may be part of repentance. Men, you know, you're repenting. You send your wife flowers to go along with it. But you don't send her flowers instead of repenting of the sin. Well, you got these flowers. You should feel good about me now. It may be someone who's trying to do a lot of nice things to make you feel better about them. You know what's better? Words and actions of repentance because that's biblical. That's that's biblical. Uh, Penance is offensive to God. Did you catch that? Penance is offensive to God because it reflects a view that relationship restoration is based on good works, not on repentance and forgiveness. And so it it is offensive. Uh, Radical example. A husband habitually yells at his wife. He feels sorrow. He gives her a gift or sends her flowers to try to make her feel better. Um, but it happens over and over again. Why? Because he's not repenting. There's no there's no heart change. It's just penance. Oh, well, I yelled at her again. I better send flowers. That is offensive. That's not acknowledging that there's a, a major heart issue, um, acknowledging how the sin hurt the other and so forth. So what are some of the differences between repentance and, and penance? Um, repentance includes a crushed and broken spirit Psalm 51 while penance is a strategy to get out of a relationship problem and it it can be uh, purely external and when I'm dealing with a married couple for example and and say say the woman needs to repent of something but she's trying to negotiate well I would be happy to repent of this but you need to repent of that no there's no back and forth there's no uh, negotiation you're repenting because psalm fifty one seventeen says the sacrifices of god are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart oh god you will not despise An <clears throat> uh, example that i like to use is i have uh, twice uh, in this church had to confront a woman over adultery on one on one hand i saw absolute just destroyed brokenness on the other hand I had somebody uh, stare me in the eye and just give me the the stink eye like you wouldn't believe like how dare you say this thing that is true even as as I'm showing a picture of the man Um, that's not that's not repentance Um, repentance listen carefully repentance focuses on what God thinks of my actions penance focuses on what another person thinks of my actions Psalm 51.4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And you know, when somebody says, I truly am sorry for what I did and I, I, am, I, I need to repent and here's why, because I've offended my God and it's so disgusting that he saved me of this and yet I did the same thing to you. You can, you can accept that. Why is this important? Because in counseling, you're gonna hear things like this. Well, I'm trying to do better. Okay. Is that external or is that based on a heart change that you realize that what you have been doing is, is, is ultimately offensive against God? I keep sending gifts and notes, but she just won't forgive me. That's penance. Quit sending gifts and notes. What words does she need to hear? What actions does she need to hear? <clears throat> I've been cooking more for him. I've been being more sexual with him. I'm doing other nice things for him. And yet he still seems to get upset over a big argument did you ever repent of the things that you said to him the things that are replaying in his mind until you say that was wrong and that was horrible so you see how people will try to get around actual repentance um, and they might even get mad at you because you deny that their penance is worth anything it's not worth anything Um, now to be clear repentance is not a guarantee of perfect behavior from now on that is, that is the sin of perfectionism. You promised you would never sin against me in this particular way again. That's kind of a tough promise to, to make. And we do have to make a distinction between life-altering sins and those things that are just part of our daily walking through the mud of the world. I think it's reasonable for a man to promise to never, ever be unfaithful to his wife again. That's a reasonable promise. Um, it is unreasonable for him to promise that I will never have one irritable moment with you ever as long as we live. You can't even keep that for a day, much less for a lifetime. So what does Luke 17 tell us? That if your brother comes to you and says, I repent, what do you do? I forgive him seven times in a day. But that's repentance, not penance. We'll do, I I didn't take questions before. So I'm gonna just pause for a minute and take some questions right now. I know we've done a lot already. We have more to do. So any questions you have so far that I can answer briefly? Yeah. Well, the, the flip side of that is First Corinthians 13 that says love believes the best. And you have a choice to say, you know, that was about the lamest uh, uh, apology I've ever heard, but I'm just going to believe you and I forgive you. Um, it keeps happening over and over again. Maybe, maybe you call them out on it and say, it, you're not looking like, for necessarily an external show and sometimes you see that, but what you're looking for is an acknowledgement that this is a heart issue that I haven't acknowledged until now. That my behavior is based on a sin I've been harboring in my heart, those are the words you're looking for. So good question. Thank you. What else? Yeah. Don. I'll forgive you, but some more hoops you have to go through for me to understand you really didn't it. So there's a difference between punishment and restitution. Um, if a man says I'm repenting to you for having an affair with a woman. If she says, that's fine, I forgive you, um, but you'll be sleeping in the garage for the next year because I just can't stand the sight of you. That's punishment. If she says, that's fine and I forgive you, um, but I need to know where you are at all times 24-7 for the next five years. That's restitution. Do you see the difference? There's something that is involved in the actual sin. If it's just, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to give you the silent treatment, then that's not true forgiveness. One more question or, or a couple more? Yeah, Caleb. Uh, what about going back to uh, grief and depression? Something big happens to somebody. Especially, I guess it would mostly be with a believer, but if that person says, "Well, I don't want to hear because you said hope mm-hmm. is, what, is the only thing that can be offered for a Christian." And say, "Yeah, but I don't want to hear about hope oh, or God's sovereignty right now. I just want to." Sure, it. Um, I think it, you do. Um, you do what God did for Elijah. Um, what did God do for Elijah after the big battle at Mount Carmel? God appeared to him, the angel of the Lord, and baked him a cake and gave him cool water and let him take a nap. And you just minister to basic needs. At that point, that's not a counseling need, that's a member care need. That's that's just, you know, how can I, can I mow your lawn? Because little things overwhelm you and things like that. Um, I, but you can still speak truth. God is sovereign, you will get through this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Can I bake you a cake? You know, so yeah, you give, you give, just give physical comfort. Um, what Romans twelve says: Weep with those who weep. When they're at that point, and they're weeping. You just just weep with them. You know, and that's 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 so helpful. What else? Yeah, Raul. Well, that's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is is that there will be women who were horribly abused and mistreated who still never acknowledge Christ and they will be judged for that. Um, and so the issue is people don't go to heaven because they had such a bad life on earth that God just feels sorry for them. They go to heaven because they acknowledge Christ and they, they come to faith in Christ. So the same gospel that saved her is what she should be praying for, for for her captors. Uh, That's what scripture says, pray for your captors. So let me me keep going. uh, Just a few more minutes and we'll take another break. Um, To just kind of put this in perspective. When is biblical counseling effective without solving the problem? Well, when peace and joy in the Lord are achieved despite the problem when the sovereignty of God over the problem is truly acknowledged, when uh, the personal sinful responses to the problem are acknowledged and repented of, uh, when the gospel comes to the forefront of thinking uh, about the problem, um, potentially, maybe when the counselee discovers that he's the problem, then, that, then that's solved. When humility and thankfulness replace, uh, replace pride and bitterness. Do you know what's great about um, discovering that you're the problem? That's very empowering. I can't change everybody else, but I can, I can do something different. I can, I can act in a way that is, uh, that is pleasing to the Lord. These slides will be available online. I'm going to keep going because we need to speed up just a little bit. We talk about marriage counseling. Here's a very simplified way forward because how do they come? Like this, right? Question number one, what percentage of the problem do you think your spouse is? That's a tough question well 75% okay question number two what are you doing to contribute to your 25% Whether are all those things now all the homework and your teaching is utilized to help the 25% spouse work on his 25% as unto the Lord you can't change her 75% but you can change yours so let's make it to where she's 75% of the problem and you're only 5% of the problem maybe, maybe she'll respond Maybe not, but you'll be doing what's godly before the Lord. I find this very effective because uh, it is uh, it, it puts the focus where it ought to be: my sanctification. Um, that's the that's the interesting thing about being a pastor. I can preach till I'm blue in the face. I can't ultimately sanctify you. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, and your own choices do that. I simply provide the means by which you can decide. A different topic. If you're thinking, oh, no, I've forgotten everything I've ever learned um, because somebody presents a horrible problem to you and and, and you're thinking, that was a three-hour seminar. That was bogus. I can't remember any of that. One question you can remember. This is the laser beam question of biblical counseling, and it might surprise you. Here it is. What do you think Satan wants you to do? Make a list of those things. Put the opposite in another column and say, here's your homework that's biblical counseling in five minutes what do you think satan wants you to do it, you know you might say well what about what god wants me to do well we can skew that but what does satan wants you to do well satan wants me to keep on running down my husband he wants me to do this and wants me to do that so what do you think you should do oh that moment of realization is beautiful all right um I'm going to take four more minutes of questions. We will take a short break and then we're going to go faster through where I'm going through now is actually the dynamics of counseling sessions. We'll go faster in that. You can get the notes. Um, I'll put the notes online as well. So um, questions for four minutes. You guys are all pros. All right, we're going we're gonna to buy four minutes of time. No, we're not because Javier is going to ask a question. <laughs> I, I, I'll talk about that briefly, but let me put it this way. Biblical counseling is surgery for one issue. Discipleship is let me help you with your life overall. Okay, so in other words, if somebody comes to you for counseling and says, I just, I just need somebody to just help my Christian life in general and to hold me accountable, to read the word in prayer. Great, let me refer you to our men's or women's ministry. You need a mentor. You don't need a counselor. Um, So that's the basic difference. Counseling brings one specific problem that is often life-altering or so painful that that life doesn't seem possible. Um, uh, Mentoring, discipleship is let's just fill our minds with the truths of God. Now, all the tools you use in mentoring and discipleship get used in counseling, but in counseling they're focused on one issue. Um, or a compilation of issues that turn into one. So, good question. Let's take a break, 10 minutes, and then we're going to go through dynamics of counseling sessions Um, real quick. uh, uh, In fact, let's just make this easy. Oh, yeah, one more question. Alex. So, we can say that uh, our goal is to help them to respond biblically to the problem not necessarily to fix the problem. Right, because you might not be able to fix it. I think the best illustration of this is cancer. Okay, well, uh, I can't fix your cancer. You might not even be able to, but you can decide that if these are the last days you have on this earth to respond in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. I don't know about you. I don't want to end my days in utter despair and get to heaven and see heaven and have Christ go, really? <laughs> I mean, look around you. Oh man, I would have gone sooner um so yeah help them help them walk through it in a way that's pleasing to the lord let's make this very easy up here are stacks of wayne max homework manual for biblical living um please take one per family if you feel like you need more i think there's a few extra but uh, you can just wander up here anytime in the next hour and grab that probably easier to come around this way so all right let's take a quick 10 minute break